welcome to another Gary Anderson F1 show. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and as always, the legend that is Gary Anderson is here to answer your questions. We've got a mixed bag today, plenty coming out of the Turkish Grand Prix weekend, and some broader ones as well for Gary to answer. If you want to ask Gary a question for a future episode, you can find him on at Gary Anderson F1 on Twitter. And we very much appreciate all of your contributions, even if we can't get through all of them, and even for those that we do get to, I will quite often mispronounce your names. So, with lots to talk about from the weekend, let's pile straight in and get Gary warmed up with a question that I think will, well, I know, I, I know what your opinion is on this, so you're going to give a good answer. This is from Clemens Zauke, so that's me starting the mispronunciations, apologies, who says, I really like the real battles before DRS was enabled in Istanbul, such as Max Verstappen versus Sergio Perez, but with DRS enabled, the overtakes were dull and the racing was gone. What's your take on it? Um, 100% agreement with you, Clements. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those difficult situations. Obviously, you can put a bandage on things, and I, and I think the DRS is a bandage, but it's a bandage that, that um, you can see a lot of drivers wait for it to happen. And, and Turkey, I think, was, was a very good example of that. You know, whenever nobody knew if it was going to actually be used in the race, people were given it a shot, trying to overtake. And, you know, pulling it off successfully or not, well, that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. It's just a case of if you're not going to have DRS, you've got to find another solution. If it is going to happen, you can sit back and wait for a little while and, and, and then, you know, use it. I thought whenever, um, when Hamilton passed Perez, for example, it was, you know, it was a mirror signal manoeuvre thing. There was no racing in that. It was just going down the straight. Yes, maybe it came out of the corner before the straight a little bit better than, than Perez. He built it up and, you know, used everything down that straight. But it, it wasn't racing. There was no way that Sergio Perez could sort of offer any competition to it at all. So that was just an event. That wasn't a thing. That wasn't racing. That was just an event that happened. Um, and, and I think that's a bit sad that we got to that. And I believe if we didn't have DRS, you would have a situation, or if it was different somehow, you would have a situation where the drivers would have to try to find solutions to overtaking other cars. But while you've got DRS, that will never happen. The next question, again challenging my pronunciation, is Eli Jabe who says, how much of a factor is the rear suspension of the Mercedes in taking six or seven laps to bring the tyres into the window? Um, well, it's probably part of it. I think the main um, objective of the rear suspension was to make the diffuser work better and, and, and actually generate more downforce from the car. So I don't think too much was taken into account as far as um, as far as tyre life or tyre uh, duration would be concerned. But it is part of, of racing. You know, they, they themselves know that uh, on normal conditions, you can get the tyres working more or less as quickly as everybody else. Now, it might be a lap different to, to a car that makes them work quickly or a lap, a lap faster than some car that makes them work really slowly. But in general, in normal conditions with a grippy track, and they've got their, um, their steering device as well, you know, so they've done things to bring the tyres up to life, but they've also done a lot of things to, to uh, get the durability so they don't get the same amount of degradation. And that's really what, in the end of the day, wins them races. They're in a pretty good position as far as bringing the tyres up is concerned because, you know, they've obviously had a lot of pool positions in normal conditions. Um, and they've won a lot of races. So they know, I think, the end objective is as many points as possible wins your championship. So the race is the thing you really focus on. And the other bit, you'll try and do the best you can with it. I think they underestimated it a bit this weekend, to be honest. I think it caught everybody a bit by surprise. Um, and... You know, but as I said in my, some of my articles about it, you know, the driver has to live with what he's got. He has to make the best out of it. And you, you didn't see Lewis making lots and lots of big mistakes 
whenever he wasn't getting the tyres up to temperature. He, he, he drove the, the car he had at that point in time, knowing that at some point in time it would come to him, and it did come to him, and you know, the, end, the end result was he was on the top step of the podium. So you have to drive the car you've got, and in all those scenarios, that changes from lap to lap, and you've got to recognise that and just take the best out of it possible. If you overdrive it, you'll make mistakes. If you underdrive it, the tyres won't get hot. So you have to just put it right on that limit, 99.99%, you know, all the time. The lap time that comes out of that is is irrelative. It's just about making sure you're using it to the maximum. And when it comes to you, then, you know, it will be quick enough. And as I say, as Lewis showed, he won the race. Inevitably, there's lots of questions about tyres and grip. So I've kind of grouped together a selection of questions on this. So first up is from Mark Eggleton. says, many teams struggle to make the tyres work, especially in qualifying. So what do teams do with the car set up to try and get the tyres in the right operating window? Well, normally what you've, your objective that you're trying to do all the time is to get the the, uh, the durability out of the tyres, not have the degradation, because as I said there about uh, Lewis, you know, it's, it's about making sure you score maximum points at the end of the race. So this was a bit of a surprise for them, the fact they went to a track where the, the track grip just wasn't there. Um, and getting the cars to, to work the tyres harder, you know, one of the things you can do is just make it stiffer. In other words, you just give the car the tyres a harder time. Um, so you stiffen up the suspension and make the tyre deflect a bit more. That puts more energy into the tyre and will heat it up. But you've got to get the compromise right because, you know, you can't just afford to abuse the tyre just to get it warm for one lap. You have to make sure that it will take you further than that because you know in the race, you know, once the, the temperature gets into the tyre and you start doing lap after lap, if it gets too hot, then it's just as big a problem. So end of the day, it's a everything's a balancing act. And I think the thing I would have done there, which everybody did, I think, you know, they ran, they suddenly desert, des, uh, decided that their medium-high downforce level for Turkey wasn't quite right. So they piled on the biggest wings they had in the back of the truck or the in the in the garage area. I think everybody ran sort of more or less max downforce, um, and they probably stiffened the car up a bit, uh, the front of the car up a bit more, so you can. Um, abuse the front tyres a bit more because the rears you can normally warm up pretty quickly you've got a lot of power you can drive through them if you want to you don't want to spin them but you want to keep loading them up um, also you'd be playing a lot with the brake ducts making sure that the, all the brake temperature was going into the rims um, just to try and get the temperature into that rim area because it's, it's not just the tyre it's the tyre and the rim the, the rim will take the heat away from the tyre if you're not careful so you've got to heat those all that, that unit up as much as possible so I think most of them have done that. They've, you know, maximum brake, maximum brake temperature going into the rims. Um, looked after the rear tires, stiffened up the front of the car a bit. You know, you can run a bit more front wing then because of that, because it would generate understeer normally. But in the wet, you want a bit, a bit more understeer, or in low grip conditions, you want a bit more understeer. You don't mind a little bit of understeer because the rear of the car is the thing that makes it tough to drive. So that's the direction you'd have taken. But these cars, you know, there isn't really that big area for fiddling on for setup. As I say, max downforce, a little bit stiffer. Um, and then you've got all the stuff like traction or the traction control. Who said that? Um, you know, the engine maps basically to look after the traction as best possible. Um, so, yeah, you will just have fiddled within your own things. But I think Turkey took everybody by surprise, the, the lack of grip. And then suddenly for day two, it was wet. So um, it wasn't as though you could do a lot of work and recover very quickly. Ross asks, how were Hamilton and Perez able to make bald inters last to the end of the race? Um, with interest, yeah. I mean, it was one of those sort of very, very difficult things to, to work out. From my point of view, sitting watching the race, um, 
it looked as though it was going to be possible, but it depended upon the threats of rain coming in the last few laps, whether or not you were going to be in a position. If that happened, uh, a bald tyre in the rain is never a good solution to anything. But with the, the way the tyres were, obviously they were, they were worn out. They had become slicks. Now, the, the intermediate tyre is a slightly bigger diameter tyre than the dry tyre. Um, and the wet tyre is a slightly bigger tyre again. And that all comes from more rubber on the tyre um, to start with. The, the, the carcass of the tyre is very similar in size. And then the rubber thickness is increased. You know, the depth, the amount of rubber on an intermediate tyre is more than the amount of rubber on a on a um, on a slick tire, and mainly because of the fact you want to keep the heat in the in the intermediate tire, but you want to dissipate the heat in the slick tire. So as they were wearing down, they ended up with probably a slightly softer compound, or as soft a compound as the soft slick, but it had more rubber there, so it would contain the heat that bit longer. The problem would be whenever it got down to a level where you might have seen white stuff on the tread, otherwise the carcass coming through, but we never saw any of that, so they were still pretty safe. Um, or you just lost too much of that rubber and it just wouldn't retain the heat. Then it would have been like a bit, a bit like a light switch where the performance would just have gone out the, out the window. But as long as they could keep the tyres warm, which they were able to do because of the, the, drying, the drying track or the drying line, they also had a little bit of a, a benefit from the fact that, you know, it was sort of, let's say, two-thirds a slick and one-third the outboard, outboard shoulders were still got a bit of tread on them. So if you went offline a little bit where the, where the damp was, you know, you had a bit of a, a sort of an in-between, I suppose you might call it, a slick intermediate. So it wasn't, it wasn't all wrong. It was a gamble because it could have gone wrong on you as well, but, you know, at the end of the day it didn't. And uh, I think they both deserved to be where they were, to be honest. Lewis winning it and Sergio second. Alex Holton asks also about tyres, about Ferrari. He says read that Ferrari could heat their tyres quite well overall, but wouldn't that suggest that it should have higher tyre wear also? Because from what Leclerc managed in the second Silverstone race, I thought their car was kind to its tyres. And I'm just going to throw in as well Waleed's question, which is, in your opinion, why were Ferrari more competitive on Sunday compared to Saturday? Because those two questions are vaguely related, I would say. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it logically, they were probably more competitive on Friday than they were on Saturday. And then they got, got it back again on Sunday. I think Sunday was a very, very difficult day to judge because it's, it's two completely different things, Saturday to Sunday. You know, the qualifying and the conditions that we had there, uh, they had, uh, and then the race and the conditions that were there were, were quite different, to be honest. So going, going back really to the first, the first question, um, Ferrari's changed quite a bit since Silverstone, I suppose you might say. You know, there are developments going on in the car, and I, I think you'd say in general the car is in a better place than it was back at Silverstone. And part of that, you know, can be making the tyres work better. It's, it's very easy to, to, to get this philosophy of we can't warm the tyres up, so we've got no grip. And it's, and it's all true, but, you know, that's part, of, that's part of what you've got as a formula. They've all got the same tyres on it. You know, all the cars have got the same tyres on it. You know, we would have that same situation if it was Goodyear or Bridgestone or whoever was supplying tyres, that there would be a difference in one car to another car. You know, I used to have cars in the past where you put on a new set and you get a massive return of lap time. And you would think, well, oh, that's great, isn't it? That's fantastic. Look at, the, look at the, how good that is with the new tyre on. But actually, it wasn't. It was the negative side of that you have to look at, how bad it was on old tyres. So then you sort of play with the car quite a bit and get it better on old tyres, and then when they put on a new set of tyres, you don't get the advantage anymore. So you think, why are we not getting the advantage out of these new tyres? So it's a circle of events. So you have to get the best 
the best out of everything, you know, on a, on a different day. So basically on a Saturday, you know, you want the tyres to warm up quickly and give you that ultimate grip for that one lap or two laps. And then on Sunday, you want the thing to stabilise and give you consistent grip and, and low wear and, and no degradation. So you're fighting that battle all the way. And it's there's it's no one thing, you know, Ferrari, they've tried very hard to make their car better. I think they have made their car better. Um, and at the end of the day... Leclerc was complaining that whenever he got his set of intermediates on that he had no front grip, I think. You know, it took time for them to come in. But again, like like Hamilton, you know, they lived with that, lived through that storm and came out the other end. And, and then they got the benefit out the other end. They didn't just keep complaining about it. Next question comes from Ginger, who asks, are you surprised teams didn't take into account the drop rates of new intermediates when advising their drivers to pit to cover other drivers who had made the switch? This, of course, because Leclerc, as soon as he switched to Inters the second time, was suddenly taking time out of people very rapidly. Yeah, he was taking people uh, time out of people very, very rapidly. It's, it's one of those things where maybe sometimes the pit wall, you know, nobody wants to make a decision. And when somebody does make the decision, the rest have to react to it. And that's why I often say, you know, the driver's shouting and screaming or whatever, moaning or groaning or saying it's great. Whatever he's saying doesn't really matter. He's only been able to voice himself against what's happening to him. And the pit wall should be alert because there's, you know, there's 19 other cars out there. So you have to be looking at everybody and you have to be saying, you know, what is happening to these guys? How many laps have they got on the tyres? Is there somebody with the tyres really dropping off suddenly because they've reached lap 25 on them? Or is there somebody that's just changed and suddenly the lap times are, are going purple? Um, and you've got to react to that because it's part of the tools that you have. You know, other people are racing with you, so they're trying their best to do the job. And it's one of those sort of things where I think, you know, you need to cover other people, but you want to try and do it first as well. You know, you want to try to do it first. And you also want to make sure that you're, you're not reacting too quickly because maybe you can do one quick lap and then he's back to the same lap time again. So you have to just keep a very, very careful eye on it and, and make sure that you're re- reacting to what other people are doing, but you know what you're thinking might happen in the future that little bit. Because as I say, you know, five laps in, Leclerc's tyres might have gone away. Lap times were back to where they were again, and, and you're it's still, mate. You know, he's, he's stuck in the same, the same area again, but he's lost 20-odd 20, 20 seconds on a pit stop. So you've got to be careful, because those 20 seconds are pretty tough to, to pull back again. Next question from Stuart Henry is, was there anything the organisers could have done to improve the grip on the new surface prior to the event? The cars on Friday in the dry looked all at sea. Just to throw a quick bit of background in there, they only finished the resurfacing a couple of weeks before the race weekend. I don't think it would have made any difference, to be honest, if they'd finished it two months before the, the race weekend. Uh, it, the, the surface there was different from other surfaces. It was, it was very, you know, not very aggressive at all. What I'm surprised about is that they, that Pirelli and the teams didn't know this or that somebody from the FIA, let's say, didn't inspect and realise that it was like a mirror, basically. You know, it was definitely a, I don't know, what makes up a concrete surface or a tarmac surface. But at the end of the day, it was a very, very smooth surface. And you could see that with the water, you know, the, there was no real rivers running across it, but it just didn't go anywhere. It, you know, normally it would seep through the surface, uh, but it didn't. It just lay there in, a, in a, a sort of sheet of glass, really. So doing something with it afterwards, I mean, we've had the same sort of thing at a lot of races where they've, they've put little grooves across the track at an angle where there's water running across and they, they need to get rid of it because of, of um, you know, the undulations in the track surface or whatever. But it, it, it's such a marginal change. Um, it, it, it's what it is. And there was 20 cars there and 20 drivers and 10 teams or whatever. 
they all had the same challenge. So at the end of the day, was it good or was it bad? It caught everybody by surprise. It meant all the simulation work that had been done was, was out the window. Um, it meant that all, because it rained on the Saturday and Sunday, it meant all the simulation work that was done on Friday night was out the window. So, you know, nobody really improved, to be honest. Nobody really got that back at base sort of um, and performance switch. Whereas this ta- this week, you know, it was it was about the engineer and the driver at that point in time doing the best job possible and reacting to the track situation as it, as it unfolded. And, and, you know, that was great to see, I think. And that, more of that, the better for me. That's, that's why I keep pushing for, you know, not being able to get the performance data out of the car until after the race, Sunday night. Log it, have it, store it away, but don't have it. Just let the driver and the engineer do his weekend's work, you know, by sticking your finger in there and seeing which way the wind's blowing. Next up, we've got a two-part question from Alex, so maybe I'll, I'll separate the two parts. And first, we'll we'll take the uh, the one about the track, which is with the grip level seen at Portimao as well on the Sunday. Do you think a low grip surface is good or bad for F1? You know, it's, it's one of these sort of things where every track has its challenges. There's, you know, from Monaco to Monza, the tracks are different in what they are and the downforce levels that the cars run. But at the end of the day, if, if, if we raced at Monza only or we raced at Monaco only, it would get a bit repetitive. So I think a selection is good. The odd one popping up here and there that's different is good. It's fine. We've had races there, um, we, you know, in Portimao and in, in Turkey, Istanbul. You know, we, we end up with a, with a winner. You know, it's, it's the same old deal. There's a grid, there's a race, and the guy comes out on top of the podium. So it doesn't matter what the conditions are, the track type is. Um, you, you want to get the best guys to be winning races. So at the end of the day, if they were all the same, it would be all the same. What, what's the point in that? Um, so I think a selection is good and I think having the odd slippy track thrown in there for reference is okay I don't think you should create it artificially which it hasn't been done it was just a set of circumstances that led to it Um, this time of the year in Turkey you can get rain we we did the big surprise was the Friday whenever everybody realised the track was was quite slippy and then we see them going round with 10 road cars to try and rubber it in I don't think that happens as I say, we've tried that a few times um, in the past during tests and stuff to dry the track and all it usually ended up is with a couple of nice rental cars plugged into the barrier somewhere just because somebody got a bit too enthusiastic like me but um, yeah you know having, having a variety is the best thing ever I've got to ask was that a confession that you may have been one of those ones who's inverted a higher car ever confess no never confess <laughs> Although you mentioning hire cars is is, uh, is dangerous because uh, the, the hire car I got when I returned it, the number plate had fallen off through uh, through poor poor attachment. Which uh, there's an ongoing dispute about whether I'm responsible for that, which uh, I don't accept. But I, I wasn't driving around the racetrack to uh, cause that. I think it just uh, detached itself of its own volition. Yeah, but was the front bumper, grill, and radiator still in, in the car? Yeah, it was all perfectly intact. Didn't roll it once. I wasn't trying hard enough. Yeah, that's you haven't tried hard enough. (laughs) Well, the second part of Alex's question was, what are your thoughts on Michael Massey's recent controversial decision-making? Of course, the big controversial one was starting Q2 while that uh, crane was still recovering Nicholas Latifi's car. So they passed it on the outlap before it behind the barriers. Um, Well, the, the way I look at it is, if that had been a team that sent a car out at the wrong time onto the track... You know, by by mistake, uh, I think they would have got severely dealt with. You know, nobody has nobody can do that with FIA, but they do make some big mistakes. 
Now, I'm not singling out Michael Massey. I'm just saying there are some big mistakes made by the FIA. Um, and we look at it, you know, whether it's from, from race to race, whether it's the safety car deployment or VSC or, you know, lots and lots of stuff. I, I don't quite see the consistency in, in it. You know, that we have this track limits thing, whether it's the white line, whether it's the curb, it's this corner, it's that corner. And, and that, to me, is all completely wrong. It shouldn't be like that. We need consistency because when you're sitting down, as the majority of people do, and watching a race on TV, you want to be able to, to try to make your own judgments. At the minute, you might as well forget about looking at whether cars are, are going off the track or on the track. You haven't got a clue because, you know, you can't see a car and you can't say, oh, was that turn four? I think that was turn four. And he went wide. You can't see that. You don't know it's turn four suddenly, you know, when you see a car going around the track. So it just needs to be consistent above board all the way. I don't care whether it's the white line. I don't care what's the curb. At the end of the day, the regulations are written that the white line is the, the track limitation. So it should be very easy to, to control those regulations. And again, as I say, sending that car out, you know, maybe he doesn't remember what happened to Suzuka, to Jules Bianchi. But that's the same deal, you know. It's so easy to have an incident because you're a driver's reacting to something, a bit like George Russell in, in uh, um, wherever it was, um, the last Emila. You know, he didn't, he, he was just trying to do his job as aggressively as possible, and the thing bit him, and he's in the barrier. And that can happen just going past a digger with a couple of, of, um, a couple of marshals there. So, you know, some repercussions has to happen at some point in time. As I say, I, I'm not singling out Michael Massey, but the FIA, I think, have got a little bit slack lately with their ability to be consistent with all its all of its its penalties, its organisation, its track limits, lots and lots of stuff. If you listed it all out, it's a long old list at the minute. And some somewhere along the line, the teams need to step back to them. I think to the, to the FIA and say, "Hang on, time to think about this a little bit." Question next from Hannes, who says the cars got really dirty at the last Grand Prix. Is there a potential impact on aerodynamic or radiator performance? I should say there was a similar question that came from Danny Herbert. Um, there will be an impact, but it's not it's not excessive. You know, you're not talking about major major changes. There's some people have actually played with, you know, the dull surfaces uh, the, to to actually generate little vortices and, and improve the the consistency of the downforce rather than a super shiny surface. But, you know, you would really, really struggle to measure that. Um, and, and again, I'll take it, you know, a step further because I suppose you could relate to, to Lawrence, um, to Lance, uh, Lance Stroll and uh, Verstappen, who had theoretically front wing problems. Uh, and they didn't sort of, well, in Stroll's position, they said they didn't really believe the data. Um, so, you know, they're looking at major changes to, to generate that problem. Um, and the same with Verstappen, if they went the wrong way with the wing, you know, they, they've got that data, they're looking at it, they should see that, and his second pit stop, they should have reacted to it, you know, I, I don't exactly know when it happened, but those are major changes in downforce, and I think if you were seeing a change because of the dirty radiators or dirty, um, dirty body surface, you'd be looking at, you know, half a percent of that change that they were seeing, so very, very hard to define how much it would cost you really wouldn't be very much. And it's the same old deal. Everybody's car got dirty, you know, so there's no, no big loss for any one team. If you, if you drive your car through a ploughed field, well, yeah, expect to lose a better performance, but, and everybody else not drive through that ploughed field. I remember get Bertram Gascio coming in after the, the first lap of the 1991 um, Grand Prix at Emila, and he had the biggest 
sort of turf you've ever seen in your in your life on the side of his helmet. He'd gone off at, at turn one through Tamborilla onto the grass, wondered why everybody else was, was lifting a little bit, and it was wet, and uh, he'd gone wide to miss everybody else instead of hitting them up the back on the grass, got this big turf thrown up from the front wheel, it smacked him on the side of the head, and uh, came into the pits with this, yeah, yeah, it was, it was impressive, impressive, and it was an Irish team as well, so it was good to see a bit of turf on there. <laughs> the next question comes from James Hunt, who says, we've all seen the pretty pictures of the murky water surface flow trails. These days, will teams be interested in seeing cars like that? I understand that years ago in sports cars, it was useful to view separation points. Um, it's moved on a bit, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, you know, you will look at that, to be honest, but that's what the teams, that's why the teams use so much flow vis on a, on a Friday. That, that does the same sort of thing. It gives you the flow on the surface. You know, we used to use a, a little bit of oil on the rear wing up the, on the rear flap or something just to, to um, go drive out and then see how far up the flap that oil would get. But it depends on the viscosity of the, the liquid you're using. We also had a system where you could press a, a sort of windscreen washer pump and pump it out onto the, a certain part of the car at speed. So, you know, it didn't get blown away at the, at the different speed from what you wanted to see the flow at. So there's lots of ways of doing it. You would, you, it's interesting to see, and I think the vortices that come off the, the rear corners of the, of the rear wing are always interesting because now you can see whenever the DRS shuts, you know, they're getting bigger, those, those vortices. Uh, if that had been sort of a race like, let's say, uh, Monza, you know, you wouldn't have seen those vortices because it's just how hard you're working that, 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 down, that uh, wing. And those vortices are not good things to have. They're, they're drag. So you want to try and eliminate them as best you can. Um, so there's lots of reasons to look at stuff, but I, I think you'd be tough to make a judgment now because CFD is so good for all of that stuff. And what is important is, that, is, is more the, the airflow off the body surface rather than on the body surface, because if you can change the, the, the airflow off the body surface, you'll alter the airflow on the body surface, which is what you're trying to do. But you have to you have to make it you know it's it's off that surface you know and it can be 10, 15, 20 centimeters that you're talking about away from that body surface get a little change in that because of a turning vein or something and that can affect dramatically how the whole car works but to actually try and analyze it from the body surface is, is quite tough. Now moving into the the broader topic section of the podcast this question comes from Chevlin Central Bar it's uh, it's a Jordan 191 related question although more more about the exploits of a driver in it uh, asks what was it like watching Andrea de Cesaris chasing down Ayrton Senna at Spa in 91 well I think I'd probably enjoyed it more if I'd been in your central bar uh, watching it um, you know it's a long long time ago and memories are always tough but I think it was the it was probably when it when it when it failed the engine um it was probably the first time I had tears in my eyes, and I think so had Eddie, to be honest, because it wasn't as though we expected to win the race, but we, we did expect to probably finish second to Senna, um, and it was a, a bit of a letdown. It's always good because, as I say, many, many times, it's lovely to get one over the big boys, and you know McLaren at that point in time was one of the big boys. So for us as a new team coming in and be competitive, that was all we could ask for, and that, that weekend had been exceptional with Michael Schumacher qualifying, then the failure in the race, so... You know, because of the whole thing, I suppose, me personally, I was a bit shell-shocked about the whole weekend. And then and then suddenly Andrea's there and, and competitive, and and then he's not there. Uh, so it's a, from massive expectations, I suppose, from from Saturday, after Michael qualifying where I did, to the end of the day on Sunday going home with nothing, it's a bit of a letdown. But it happens, you know, it happens to everybody. And uh, it's tough to cope with, but you got to give yourself a shake yourself off and 
There's another one coming in a couple of weeks' time. Well, this has also given me a good opportunity to throw in a plug uh, because the sister podcast, uh, Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories, we recorded an episode in the second series that both myself and Gary are on, along with Glenn Freeman, who hosts that podcast entitled How Benetton Snatched Schumacher from Jordan, which does touch, obviously, on the Belgian Grand Prix as well. So download that if you want to hear all about that little period, which obviously Gary was heavily involved in. And actually, we've got one other Jordan 191-related question which is actually there's a preface to this question from Derek Irwin, which I don't quite understand, but I'm, I'm going to ask you in the hope you do. He, he says, do you have an Ulster fry every day? Uh, no. Um, it'd be nice to do that, but I don't think I could, I could even cope with that. You know, it's, um, no, I'm a boiled egg man. Uh, so is this, is this kind of a, an unhealthy, no-holds-barred breakfast then? Um, an Ulster fry is, it depends on where you get it, but it's mega. Um, it's just everything, everything that's in the kitchen sink, really, basically thrown onto a plate um, and then double it. So an Ulster fry can be from, you know, anything you ever imagined in your mind that you can put on a plate. So um, very, very good. There's a few places that are very good at it. Um, my sister's actually very good at making one. But um, no, I, d- I don't have one of them. Not now. Not at my age. <laughs> well, that's the important part of the question. But uh, but moving on, and Derek Owen very kindly says a big fan of your work, uh, Gary, and is enjoying the podcast. But his question is about the cables on the Jordan 191 running to the rear wing from the engine cover. Were they really necessary or was it belts and braces stuff? Um, it, it was a bit of both, really. Um, we, it's one of those sort of situations where we push the limits as much as possible. Uh, there's some circuits where you wanted the rear wing to back off a bit, which you could sort of get away with some of it in those days. There was other circuits where you didn't want it to back off because you had a very high-speed corner, um, so you didn't want to lose the rear downforce because it would make the front of the car too pointy. Um, so it was a balance tonight between having the rear wing at the angle you thought it was against a circuit where you could let it back off a little bit. So belt and braces at some points in time, and a little bit of a set up tweak other points in time but uh, you know you have to use everything you can to be honest to to get the best performance out of, out of these cars people still do exactly the same you know much many many millions of dollars have been spent into spent on how to um legally allow aerodynamic surfaces to change their downforce levels through deflection um and it, it's never been, it's never been different and that was part of that Next question is uh, a simple-sounding one, but an interesting topic, which is from Michael Stevens. He says, can you explain how a torsion bar suspension system works? Well, a torsion bar, yeah, I mean, front or rear, it doesn't really matter. A torsion bar is just like a spring, but it's a straight bar, and you, you sort of anchor one end of it, and you, you twist it um, the other end. So it's, it's a bit more like a drive shaft, but an actual spring itself does exactly the same. You know, it, it twists through its length. Um, so a torsion bar is a, is a much lighter solution than a spring, um, but it's, it's always difficult to get a lot of deflection with it because the, the torsion bar length is very critical to the deflection. So if you've got a lot of suspension movement, you need quite long torsion bars. If you've got very little suspension movement, you can have quite short torsion bars. But if you do look at it like a drive shaft, that's about it. Every drive shaft in the world twists. Um, and if you listen to the cars at, at the weekend, even in Turkey, um, when they change gear, you can hear this oscillation. And that's basically the tire, the tire winding up a bit, the drive shaft winding up a bit. And when the two of them sort of get out of phase with each other, you hear this, this oscillation going through the car. Um, so as I say, a torsion bar is very similar. It's the thing that holds the car up and the up from the ground. So it's basically, it's basically a spring, but it's a straight spring, and relate that torsion bar thing, as I say, to what a drive shaft would look like. 
Just to throw in my own supplementary question, are there any performance and characteristic advantages for that over just the weight saving? Packaging, because it's obviously, let's say the torsion bar on the front of, of a Formula One car currently would be maybe 15 centimetres long um, and probably um, spline area at the end of it, two centimetres in diameter with a, you know, a, a, um, a one centimetre diameter shaft, a connection between the two. And that's what you're twisting up. Whereas if you had a spring on there, you know, it could be five centimetres in diameter. It would probably be very similar in length. So, you know, it's, it is packaging. Everything is so, has to be so tightly packaged because of the way the Formula One car is. You want the minimum cross-section of the chassis, minimum height of the chassis. So that area through the front wheels of the car, um, the central line of the front wheels, basically, you want to minimise the, the blockage through that area. So anything you can do there to, to have less big lumps of stuff to house inside that bodywork, the better. And a torsion bar is a better solution for that. On the rear of the car, it's the same deal. You know, it's the pull rods are dropped down into a rocker system uh, in the bell housing, and then the torsion bar's in there. And uh, on time, I think this will be the final question we'll get in from JBS, is seeing as the Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton just won both world championships and the cars are basically unchanged for next year, are Red Bull still the only threat, or are there other teams you think will be able to close up to them in 2021? Um, it's going to be pretty tough, isn't it, looking at it on face value. I think the thing that Red Bull seem to do over the last few years is throw it all away uh, very easily. You know, they start the season badly and they end up strongly. Um, they start this season poorly, then they got themselves competitive and now they're sort of in that area where, you know, mistakes, mistakes are being made, um, both from the team and from a driver point of view. So... It's frustration, I think, in Red Bull's point of view. So they need to just step back a little bit, I think, and settle down and start the season strongly and try and keep the momentum going. It's it's very, very difficult. But with the minimum changes on the cars, you know, at the end of this year, basically, for next season, it's going to be tough to see a team coming, coming forward uh, enough to sort of take competition to Mercedes because, you know, the, the race in Istanbul, Istanbul was... was a different race, but at the end of the day, Lewis still won that race in a Mercedes. He probably shouldn't have if others had done their job correctly, um, but they didn't. They didn't, and at the end of the day, you know, there's only one winner, so he 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 won that race. But in general, up to now, up to this this season so far, it's been a pretty potent potent package, and I think it'll only get stronger. Yeah, hard to disagree with that. Well, sorry we couldn't get any more questions in. There are a few questions I had queued up about 2022, which I think maybe we'll look at next week. Perhaps we should do a 2022 rule special next week. Should we invite questions on that? Gary nodding. He, he likes the idea of that. So fire through some 2022 questions to at Gary Anderson F1 on Twitter. Also, you could send them to me on at Ed Straw F1. Obviously, big changes coming then. So even if nothing's going to change much next year, there's a big shift to look forward to then. So thanks very much, Gary Anderson, for your insight. As always, you can read plenty of Gary's work on the race website. He's had a look at what F1 can learn from the the low grip experiment at the weekend, the accidental experiment, as we call it. So there's all sorts to read from him and everyone else on the race website. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with more from Gary.